Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Uh, my name is Ellen Narenberg uh, from Wesleyan University, and it's my great pleasure to have here today with me Ramsey McGlazer to talk about his fascinating book published in 2020 by Fordham University Press entitled Old Schools, Modernism, Education, and the Critique of Progress. Ramsey, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks, Ellen. It's really great to be here. So I would just like to say a few words of introduction for our listeners, both about my guest and about his new book. Ramsey McLaser is lecturer in Italian and comparative literature at the University of St. Andrews in St. Andrews, UK. He is a comparatist whose uh, research centers on modern and contemporary literature, film, and critical theory. Principally, he works in English, Italian, and Spanish and Portuguese linguistic, cultural, and socio-historical contexts, though the study we are here to discuss today on education and counter-tradition will be of interest to anyone working in these fields, irrespective of any specific linguistic context. Ramsey McLaser's other research interests also include the poetry and poetics of fatigue, fascist era, post-war, and recent Italian cinema, and feminist, queer, and psychoanalytic theory. Additionally, he is associate editor of Critical Times, Interventions in Global Critical Theory, which is a journal out of uh, Duke University Press, and is co-editor of Italian Culture, which is the journal of record of the American Association for Italian Studies. To give our listeners a general lay of the land for, uh, for this specific study, I will say briefly, and by way of introduction, that the truly fascinating Old Schools, Modernism, Education, and the Critique of Progress, traces the ways in which a group of modernist cultural practitioners, including thinkers, politicians, artists, poets, novelists, and filmmakers, resisted certain notions of education that were described as progressive and which sought to leave behind the, and I'm quoting, sterile and narrow forms of education that insisted on rote learning and which did not help uh, students of any age transform. So education was not transformative uh, using these forms of um, pedagogy. Resisting the ideology of progressive education, the figures that Ramsey McLaser studies offer a counter tradition, one that seeks to find resistance strategies in things like grammar, learning by rote means, reproducing, and I use that term advisedly, the content by ways of ordained forms of learning. The, pr- the practitioners that he engages with in this study include figures like Victorian Walter Pater, um, author of the Influential Studies in the History of the Renaissance, first published in 1873 and the focus of his attention in the first chapter. Pater and his interest in the mechanistic is followed by a late 19th century figure in Italian literature and culture, Giovanni Pascoli, 
and the role that grammar plays in Pascali's work. Uh, this is followed by a chapter on James Joyce's Ulysses, which picks up on the notion of direct instruction, a topic I think we'll return to. And the concluding chapters offer one on uh, Pierpaolo Pasolini's last film, Salo, or The 120 Days of Sodom from 1975, and something we could call the pedagogy of pain. Old Schools concludes with a chapter on the work of Brazilian-born film director Glauber Rocha and a film of his from 1975 entitled Claro. Taken together, these chapters offer riveting, and I am not exaggerating, riveting analyses that make anyone involved with teaching any subject and at any level think about just what they are doing in their classrooms when they say they're teaching. So, Ramsey, that's my introduction to your, to your really interesting book. And as I think you may know, we always start with, with a couple of standard questions out of which we hope that others will unfold in what will be, I am sure, a lively conversation about old schools, modernism, education, and the critique of progress. So the first is, how did you come to write this particular book? Well, I just to say initially um, have been smiling, which you haven't be able, been able to hear, but it's really gratifying, um, as I'm sure you know, right, um, as an academic to, to hear an argument distilled and read back in the way you've just done. So thanks so much for that introduction. Um, I think of the book as having emerged from two sets of roughly simultaneous readings I was doing uh, in graduate school. So this book began as a dissertation. And the most formative encounter uh, when it came to the theoretical framework of the book was really this encounter that I had repeatedly with um, Gramsci's pages, Antonio Gramsci, the Italian Marxist organizer and theorist, um, his pages on the Latin class, which presented such a challenge, um, it seemed to me, um, in particular for someone invested in, um, in teaching, um, in questions of pedagogy, um, in thinking about the past and forms of engaging with it. Um, so Gramsci argued in response to a set of educational reforms undertaken by the fascist regime um, that something was lost when this apparently good thing happened, right? So the fascist um, minister of education, Giovanni Gentile, was also an influential theorist of education, and he's someone I engage with um, at several points in the book. Um, and his claim um, was to be modernizing education. Um, that meant doing away with compulsory Latin for all Italian school children, um, which on its face would seem to be something that you'd welcome, right? Like who wants to be stuck in the Latin class um, isn't that one of the most oppressive forms of education we could imagine, right? Um, definitely making education into something other than um, a joy and a pleasure. Um, so what's not to like about this reform, um, we might think initially, right? But Gramsci's, I think, counterintuitive argument um, was actually that what this reform did was introduce a tiered system such that Latin became um, offered only to um, the most privileged students. And um, those deprived of this 
method of instruction, right? Those who were no longer subjected um, to compulsory Latin instruction in school were then missing out on something. So his, his pages, which are tantalizingly brief, but really, really inexhaustible, I think, on the Latin class locate a democratic potential there um, in a way that's not about the content of those lessons, but rather about the form they take. And so this was this was something I was reading at a time when I was also um, preparing for my qualifying exams. So fittingly, I think for a book about school, um, there was a part of the argument that also emerged from a, um, a, a scholastic chore, right? Like something I was compelled to do as an exercise um, in order to qualify for my PhD. And in that reading, I kept coming across in both English and Italian, um, in both literature and film, scenes of instruction where something seemed to be happening um, that resonated with, with Gramsci's description, right? So people, um, again, working in various genres and mediums and languages um, who seem to be locating in what we might take to be the least promising and least liberating kinds of teaching, um, actually a resistant potential, or even in some cases, an emancipatory potential. Um, and I'm sure we'll be discussing the various instances um, that find their way into the book, but it was really this simultaneous reading of Gramsci's pages on the Latin class on the one hand, and on the other, um, this modern, mostly modernist, right, literature and cinema that seemed to stage scenes of instruction in ways that I thought Gramsci's account could help us to unpack, to understand. Now, that's so interesting. If I could just interject here and say that recently I was teaching um, 1970s Italian cinema uh, revisions of fascism, including Amarcord, uh, Fellini's Amarcord. And I'm reminded of that um, hilarious scene where the child is trying to um, reproduce for the instructor a specific kind of pronunciation of Greek, for example. I'm not sure if you remember this from Amarcord. I haven't rewatched recently, but I do. I do know the film. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, so so it's so useful because the child actually finds remarkable resistant. He's making he is satirizing this um, already a caricature of a um, of a Greek instructor in fascist era Italian public school. So I recommend that to you because the, the teacher eventually figures out that he's being made terrible fun of, uh, but it's certainly in line with um, the the radical potential that I think you're outlining for, um, uh, for old school, right? The old school forms of learning. And um, before we go um, too much farther into that, and we'll talk about this because we'll talk about mechanistic education, uh, catechistic education, learning by memorization, learning by rote, and something that I'd like to um, uh, bookmark and come back to is maybe even motive memory, um, memory of the body and training and children in seats and things like that. The, the ways in which school is also a, a biopolitical project, right? Um, but before we go too far and, and sort of still thinking generally, since my own background is not particularly consistent in the philosophy of education, I wondered if you could, if, if you wouldn't mind setting the stage for us about the, the various schools of thought. I mean, you have done this already uh, in a little bit, but I wondered if you could elaborate on the old school forms and then the counter-progressive um, incursions into that. And it might just be useful um, along the way to 
characterize the tensions that might emerge between these various thinkers in the way that you've already begun to do with, for example, Giovanni Gentile on the one hand and Antonio Gramsci on the other? Sure. So one way I can uh, answer that question is just by going directly to uh, the two figures you've just um, identified who are really key to setting the tone in the introduction um, and who I think are, are emblematic uh, for my purposes of the two tendencies that you've asked me to, to lay out. So um, to start with Gentile, who's a bit more um, obscure, I imagine, to most, uh, most listeners, less familiar, um, he uh, was an idealist philosopher, right? And so his understanding of the distinction between education on the one hand and instruction on the other um, was informed by a long engagement with um, Northern European philosophy, right? So with, with German idealism, um, for example, um, and also differently um, and a bit less directly uh, with the work of um, Rousseau as it informs right, that German idealist tradition. And so within this tradition, if we think about um, Fichte's uh, addresses to the German nation, for example, where they're really harrowing and quite a stunning pages um, on instruction in dead language, as opposed to teaching in the vernacular, right? Education is a matter of the formation of a whole person. And it is aspiring to um, a kind of agreement with the student's natural inclinations, right? Or rather, um, it, it presents itself as kind of maximizing the student's potential um, to flourish based on natural inherent potential, right? So that's very different from what's called instruction in the Italian context, which is not about the kind of whole student, um, is not about an inward experience of kind of um, communing with one's um, one's lessons, right, the things one reads or the, uh, the things one hears in a classroom. Um, it's, it's instead about repeating back what you've crammed, right, studied by cramming the night before, right, or reproducing, as you say, a word we obviously want to come back to, right, reproducing um, forms of knowledge that are transmitted in uncreative and, and constraining ways. Right, so here's what I mean when I refer to the kind of apparently unpromising traditions of the old school, right? Um, Gentile's pages on instruction um, are really trashing it, right? <laughs> are saying, look, we have been in the habit of um, privileging these old school forms. We Italians, right, like haven't graduated from um, those methods. We still give pride of place to Greek and Latin. And so Italians aren't becoming fully equipped modern citizens, right? They aren't becoming um, whole persons, right? They're not integrating um, what they learn into their sense of themselves and their place within the nation. Now, to be very clear, I am not suggesting that because Gentile uh, drew inspiration from these progressive theories that he was progressive, right? And I'm certainly not suggesting that um, as the example of Fellini you've referred to already, already indicates, right? I'm certainly not suggesting that under fascism in a classroom you'd be, uh, you know, 
like Emile, Rousseau's Emile, right? Just like, um, you know, out in the world and um, looking at butterflies, right? Or, or communing with what was being taught. I think um, instruction, of course, remained in practice um, the center of Italian public education. But it, I think, is Gramsci who teaches us to ask the really key question that's an ideological question and, and, and theoretical question, which is what does it mean about the progressive educational tradition that it was available for that kind of co-optation, right? What does it say that these, to use Gramsci's characterization, right, these, these liberal and Rousseauian, right, or Rousseauist um, ideas were amenable to fascist idealization or mystification, right? That they could be used to underwrite um, democratic democratic looking reforms or reforms that could be mistaken for democratizing the abolition of um, compulsory Latin and Greek, um, but that were in effect radically anti-democratic, right? So that becomes becomes Gramsci's question. Um, and then, I mean, there's a lot more to say about um, the ways in which um, Gramsci, uh, yeah, paves the way for the, uh, the pedagogy that I call counter-progressive which in most cases is not actually a matter of um, teaching done by a teacher, but is about this mediated engagement with, um, with instruction in that disparaging sense, right? Where it's transvalued, right? It, it's, it's recognized as actually affording more than people like um, Gentile thought, right? In literature and film in particular. You know, if, if you were sitting across from me instead of uh, remotely located um, across a microphone and the Ethernet and all sorts of things, you would see me nodding vigorously, but trying not to say things like, mm-hmm, I so see what you mean, you know, vocalizing those types okay. of things, because this it resonates so strongly with so many conversations we have, particularly for those of us who are located in the, in the humanities and particularly within the humanities, those who are located within um literary cultures, the study of literary texts, and especially those literary texts that are, that require study of foreign languages for a foreign, for an Anglophone uh, world, like, you know, North America and like the United States. Um, And so I'm so struck by the notion of Gramsci saying, um, if I've got this right, that uh, if you dispense with Latin and Greek for everyone, and it only becomes the province of those people who have the time to sit around, uh, those people who have the money, those people who are in the sociological conditions that permit them to have the kind of transformative spiritual engagement with education, then we are really depriving students, not so much of the, of what is boring, although you do say things that are interesting about boredom and disattention, right? About the space in which students' minds wandering, perhaps, when they're going through um, verb conjugations, which if you don't do your verb conjugations, you cannot speak another language, right? Uh, Excepting, of course, American Sign Language or a signed language, of course. Um, But I'm not talking about that so much. Um, So, what would you say about that? I mean, it, it, am I on the right track with understanding sort of the quid of what you're interested in getting at is that it's not so much about um, the uh, uncovering or having the student-centered notion of what students want so as 
providing students, all students, with the chance to experiment with those forms. I guess, I guess my questions, it's pretty, pretty nebulous, but I'm wondering what your response is to some of those comments. Yeah, no, that's exactly, that's exactly, I think, the direction um, I wanted to take, right, is to ask, um, yeah, what, what do students miss when they're uh, not um, compelled to engage with, yeah, the foreign, um, the alien, so-called, or the old, right, in some form. And this is why I think it's so important to underscore the point that Gramsci makes, um, that, that other figures in the book also will, uh, will make in various ways, that it's, it's not because of the value of Latin as such, right? It's not this kind of capital T tradition Right, that we find extolled in the work of someone like T.S. Eliot, right, or obviously um, many, many uh, kind of reactionary figures um, to this day, right? It's not Latin or Greek. It's not the kind of capital W, capital T Western tradition, right, that's being affirmed in these moments and in counter progressive pedagogy. And I, say, I think this is one sort of challenge I face because it takes a while to get um, to this. Uh, to this part of the argument, if you're in an elevator, right, there's not always time when you're giving the pitch, right, um, to, to, um, to get here, right? And so people, I think, come away from a brief description sometimes um, with the idea that, that it's a kind of, um, a, you know, study of, of reactionary projects or, um, yeah, no sense going into the various uncharitable um, descriptions or mischaracterizations there could be. But just to say that I think one challenge is um, to really point to and insist on this fact that it is not Latin as such. It's not the content of these lessons that's being theorized and that's being um, kind of recognized and reactivated across the various chapters in the book. So Pascoli, the poet and subject of chapter um, two, has a version of um, this claim, which is to say that it, it could be Sanskrit. Um, and even though, you know, Pascoli is somebody quite dusty who we might take to be kind of one of the more um, pedantic and boring, right, least sexy figures in the book. But in fact, I think this is a really interesting, um, this is a really interesting claim, right, that, that it could be Sanskrit. The thing that matters is that it be at a remove from the vernacular, which is also to say at a remove from students' um, immediate world, right, something um, that strikes them as alien, that strikes them as dead, right, as old, as difficult, right, as dense. Um, and so, I mean, I think another way to respond to the question um, that you posed, which I really appreciate, is to say that I was writing against uh, the claim I think we often find, or not even a claim, it's, it's often just more of an assumption, I think, in so many of our conversations, including um, in our conversations within the humanities um, about our work, our place, our public contribution, or potential public contribution, right? Which is the assumption that in order for something to be democratic, it has to be easy. I was Absolutely. really right against Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I, I just, I have to, in, I have to, may I share something with you? It's, um, please. I, ho I hope, okay. So I, I hope that this is appropriate. Um, I, um, advise, uh, I, I advise pre-majors at Wesleyan, which is a liberal arts university. And so I get students from across the curriculum and I check in with them. I keep telling them they're taking a course. There's always a fifth course that they're taking, which is, you know, you in college. And we talk about that course and we try to have um, 
benchmarks and you know times in which we'll talk about it. But I checked in with my with my advisees recently, and I had a student who um, was taking Latin in their first semester, and they wrote me and asked um, if if they could not take the second semester of Latin. And since Wesleyan is a low requirement environment, I said, and the Wesleyan way is to empower students to make their own decisions about their own choices in their establishing their educational objectives um, and, and making the choices that will make their education transformational and not transact- transactional. So that's, that's another thing. But I wanted to read to you, if I could, anonymously, this email that I received from a student um, Wednesday, uh, that is to say two days ago. Um, I have been thinking for the past week, writes the student, and have been wavering back and forth many times to see if I want to continue taking Latin and how I feel about the class or the subject in general. I'm optimistic that whatever decision I make, things will work out. I thought it might be a good idea to elaborate my hesitancy on continuing Latin, and I'll admit that the class got much more difficult for me as the semester went on. I had a hard time learning and studying the material and completing assignments. I also experienced a lot of a lot of anxiety in class being called upon to read and translate, and even about volunteering to do so or to answer other types of questions. I really do hope to get better at participating in class despite my anxiety. I was just worried that taking another semester of Latin might be too difficult or stressful for me. However, I have started to think that maybe I can do it. To sum up, my most recent thought is that if I could get better at Latin or find a way to decrease my anxiety around it, then I might be more willing to take the class. In a somewhat related vein, I was struggling, and this is the interesting part for me, that's Ellen interceding right there. Um, I was struggling with economics last semester while actually enjoying the class, but I managed to find better ways to learn and study it. So that was the email that I received from an advisee earlier this week. And I was, I wrote back to them and I said, you, you in college is a pass fail class. (laughs) I said to them, but you have just passed you in college in your first semester by a country mile. Because if a student can arrive exactly that, you're right, it does take a little time to get there about difficulty, for example, and what you can learn about you learning if you allow yourself to do something that is challenging, that is difficult. And that moreover, like ancient Greek, is pretty difficult for everyone, right? That's democratizing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, so I don't know. You have any comments about about my advisee writing to me about that? I mean, it's, it's what a thoughtful, um, what a thoughtful and sort of yes, yeah, self aware student. It really sounds like a remarkable um, trajectory this this student is on. Um, and I suppose it, it does make me want to say one thing, which is um, another point of clarification um, to kind of dispel another potential uh, misinterpretation, which is. Um, Although there, there are many ways in which the book is is polemical, right? It's kind of animated by this this polemical energy, and the introduction in particular, I wanted to be um, manifesto like, and maybe we could talk more about that if it's interesting. But um, but in the meantime, just to say that um, despite or for all its polemical um, qualities, the book is not suggesting that we can do without all the 
the, you know, the entire um, tradition of student-centered learning, right? So, so I've taught in various environments, including environments that have been much more, uh, yeah, permissive and, um, yeah, kind of progressive, right? I think of, of having taught um, at Bard College, for example, a place, you know, that so clearly has internalized, um, internalized these lessons, um, these, pro- these progressive lessons, and I've seen the value that there is um, in that of affording students that sort of um, freedom, um, in particular, you know, at, at the college level, I think. Um, so it's not at all a kind of like call to do away with every form of teaching other than the old, oldest, right? And, um, and um, you know, most frustrating, um, you know, least accommodating to students, uh, cruelest when it comes to its capacity to generate anxiety and frustration and, and so forth. It's not that at all. Um, it's, it's, it's really, um, again, thinking in concert with or in conversation with people like Gramsci about what happens when student-centered teaching becomes hegemonic and older methods, non-modern methods, right, that do not center on the individual student and do not privilege things like play, spontaneity, curiosity, fun, again, inwardness, right, um, integration. What happens when those are, to borrow a phrase from myself, right, just, just cast onto the trash heap of obsolescence? Like, what are, we, what are we potentially going without when we think we can simply dispense with with all of that right with with everything um associated with these traditional um forms of instruction and i think this might be a way of also returning to a question of yours that i left a sub question within a question that i left unanswered some time ago which is about the tensions between the various um the various figures educational theorists in particular um that i engage with or whom i engage with whose work i engage with throughout the book um and so just to clarify that, um, I, I, um, I'm aware that progressive education and progressive pedagogy are um, capacious, right, uh, even contested phrases, right, contested terms, that there isn't a settled definition of either. And I deliberately um, deploy those, those capacious categories in order to group together thinkers who might not be thought together, who might not be read together typically, right? So if I'll just, I won't do too much of this, but maybe just to read a few of my own sentences in case this is clarifying. Um, no, absolutely. Please do. Please okay, go ahead. Great. Thank you. So from a footnote um, where, I, where I'm explaining, um, explaining why I consider diverse educational theories and practices progressive, um, I just say I do this not to elide the differences between, say, Rousseau and Gentile, or John Dewey and Paolo Freire, whose liberatory or critical pedagogy discussed in chapter five is often distinguished from Dewey and and other liberal progressive models. My aim is instead to draw attention to the premises, priorities, and polemical targets that these various approaches share. And I continue, all present themselves, for instance, as modernizing and humanizing alternatives to an old school whose methods are characterized as mechanical, rote, repetitive, uncreative, constraining, oppressive, and even deadening. So it's, it's the consequences of that characterization and what it might leave out. In other words, what, what the affordances of the old school um, 
might be that don't find their way into that description, right? That, that characterization or caricature that I'm really interested in throughout the book. Yeah. And if I could just say at this point that um, the thinkers and the practitioners that you're engaging with in the modernist tradition coming out of the avant-garde located, let's say from, you know, 1873 in the publication of Pater's uh, Studies in the Renaissance to um, around 1975, when you conclude with Pasolini and um, Rocha, I wanted to say that there, the, there is tremendous present contemporary currency to these arguments. They are, I find, oh, they are spectacularly important for us to consider, um, especially perhaps um, in the field of the humanities, where there is something about the transmission of knowledge and of the way, well, all fields are that way. What I mean to say is a lot of value is placed on the history of the transmission of knowledge. And so to get, to draw this to, um, to give a really concrete example, that there is great utility in being non-utilitarian about education. And the reason I think if I follow the arguments that you're making in, in your book, it is to say that in precisely the kinds of um, catechisms, mechanisms, rote, memoratio, imitatio, you know, these kinds of very old school methods, there are possibilities for students to play. And I mean that in every sense of the word. And I don't, I mean, we've come to understand that our classrooms are supposed to be quote unquote student centered, that they're, that students are supposed to, um, uh, you, uh, you, um, identify the hallmarks of a progressive ideology of education, which include play and spontaneity and student-centered classrooms and interactivity, um, par- participatory learning. All of those things are really important. And I, I think we should shout out to our classicist colleagues because some of them have the most, adve- the most um, shall we say, current pedagogical methods of um, engaging students in the study of Latin, including the colleague, no doubt, that taught the student, my, my, my student, my advisee, who wrote that email, right? Um, but that there is something really important to presenti- presenting students with challenges that they can engage in, puzzles that they can figure out how to, how they solve them, where their cre- creativity is. Um, and I, I just wanted to say that lest anyone think reading, you know, reading your book that these are um, somehow um, necessarily bound in the, um, the tradition of idealistic f- philosophy and ending somewhere in the 1970s. Au contraire. I mean, they are so current right now. I think that, as I say, I, I really um, do believe that if we're not asking ourselves these questions when we say we are teaching, then I wonder what it is that we are doing. Are we asking for the kind of sterile reproduction, close quote, um, of a certain kind of content? What are we doing when we don't insist on answers that, well, answers on um, arguments that make sense that are consistent with the subjects that we're teaching? I mean, I think we've all 
I don't want to talk too much about this because this is um, because I could go on at length about this, but um, I, I just wanted to say that there's tremendous currency to the arguments that you're advancing in old schools. Um, and I'll just leave it at that unless you wanted to comment on something like that, uh, that I had just said. Well, just quickly, I mean, I love the phrase you used utility in being non-utilitarian. And it, while we're kind of um, doing shout outs to classicists in particular, it makes me want to, um, to recommend uh the work of the Italian classicist Maurizio Bettini, um, whose book A che servono i greci e i romani, I think seeks um, to, to to get at precisely this, right? What what are the, the Greeks and Romans for, right? Is um, a study in the context of of contemporary Italian classrooms, right, um, including those who are new, right? So migrant students, for example, um, Bettini refers to them as as new Italians, right? What, what would it mean um, as one of these students, right, um, to come into contact with um, Greek and Latin in um, the context of schooling? Would that simply be a reproduction or, or rather an imposition, right, of a narrow um, and limiting Italian identity, right? If we think about the long tradition, of course, continues to this day of claiming, um, right, of, a, of, of the Italian state or the Italian nation laying claim to um, the classical past. Bettini's argument, though, is that on the contrary, um, on the contrary, something's opened up p- potentially, right, in this encounter with what is not the vernacular, which is to say, right, what is not Italian, but is this 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 other other world. Um, and there too, I think it's interesting to note that it's not a kind of proprietary claim about the specialness of of the Romans or the Greeks, right? On the contrary, it's it's. Um, it's almost as if these are a placeholder. I mean, not quite, because of course there can never be a contentless transmission, right? I mean, you can never fully bracket out content and only be doing form in the classroom, as I think we know, right? Um, but I think there's a there's a movement in that direction, right? In the direction of of bracketing um, bracketing content. Um, the the um, the other brief thing I wanted to say in response to um, to your reflections, and thank you so much for recognizing the currency that there might be in in this book um just to refer uh if you'll permit me a bit of self-promotion to the shorter piece i've written for the los angeles review of books called confessions of a cake boy where that's precisely what i'm trying to um think through is how improbably perhaps right um rousseau's emile right might remain um in the background of even the most cutting edge kind of uh technological innovations uh, in the context of contemporary campus life, um, so so I agree with you, and I'm very glad um, to hear um, to hear you say that. Uh, it, it makes me very happy that this is not an elevator, right, and that we have the gift of time. Um, well, to... if it's an elevator, it's a really long, it's a really really tall building. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> we've had plenty of time to talk about no, and, and but we're not done yet because I wanted to, um, if I could take a step back and get a little macro, I wanted to say that you know as I read. Um, your book, Old Schools, I felt at its heart like a pulse, a nexus of questions that, that kept recurring to me. And they were like this. There's three of them, but they each have sort of two parts. So what is education? How does it differ from instruction? So you've talked a little bit about that when you talked about how fun, fundamental Gramsci is in your, ta- in, in your thinking here. What is education for? if anything, and what does it mean to ask the question, what is education 
for? And then finally, who is education for? And what are the stakes of that particular question? That is percolating through everything that you're that you examine in the chapter on Pascoli, in your chapter on Joyce, in your chapter on Pasolini, which I really want to get to before um, before we conclude, because um, if we could get into conversation with uh, with Pasolini, um, you take on. Um, we haven't talked about the late aspect of the the works that you um, are engaging with that they that they tend to come later in um, the practitioners' careers, which I think is a really interesting premise. But um, Pasolini's last film, um, uh, Salo, or the 120 Days uh, of Sodom. Um, and uh, the notion of um, learning and pain. Uh, I presented a, a more anodyne version of that, which is to say that there's there's tremendous um, there's a tremendous challenge in trying to learn something difficult. That kind of pain, the anxiety that my advisee was talking about, for example. Um, yet Pasolini's take on the pedagogy of pain is really quite different, and so I, I, I wondered if you could, if it makes sense to, to transition to talking about um, that particular part of your study and how it might relate to some of these other things that we're talking about. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so it happens to be the first, uh, the first part of the book I wrote um, in part because Pasolini um, is someone I'd been reading and um, reckoning with um, for, for many years. I wrote my undergraduate thesis on on um, his last novel, Petrolio, right? He'd been kind of um, a figure uh, I, I wanted to be in conversation with um, for for a while, and so I felt best equipped at the very start of the project to um, to undertake that that work. And I love the phrase, this gift of a phrase you um, you provide, pedagogy of pain. Um, in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I make this kind of joke in the introduction when I say um, that all roads in the book lead to Salo, right? In the sense that there's, um, yeah, um, a, a way of thinking about difficulty um, and duress, right? Education as an experience of um, duress, right? That I think I take from from that um, film, uh into right so that it's implicitly informing um, all the other chapters up to and including the the turn to Rocha, which which um, lets me try to do something different. I mean, it's important to me that Rocha's representative of the kind of avant-garde uh, filmmaking Pasolini did not like, right? So so there's a tension um, there too at that level too um, between the last two chapters, um, just as there's one um, between, for example, the the Joyce chapter and the, the Pasolini chapter, and I'm happy to say um, more about that if it's if it's helpful. I mean, I wanted there to be a recurring uh, set of questions and um, formal uh, tendencies or techniques, but at the same time for there to be a dynamism so that um, the book was unfolding in a way that wouldn't be too uh, relentless in its repetitiveness, um, despite the fact that I was making arguments about the importance of, of repetition and, um, and repetitiousness. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I think that's also to say that Pasolini's last film gives us um, in harrowing ways 
um, a lot of tools for thinking about these three or four questions that you've um, identified as as central, right? Um, it's a it's an enormously complex uh, film because of its status as a kind of problematic adaptation, um, because of its incendiary right qualities as a film that was for many years regarded as 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 unwatchable, um, right? Terribly graphic, kind of going too far um, in its depiction of brutal assaults um, and various kinds of sexual violence, right? Um, but then also there's this this problematic um, aspect of the film that has to do with its you know its place in in Pasolini's uh, biography, which is you know still often treated, I think, hagiographically, hege- um, right? So so it it became important to um, important to kind of uh, write against that um, as I was approaching Salo. But I have the feeling I've done a lot of situating of that film and, and not yet maybe pointedly answered your question. Well, actually, I wanted to just take a step backward. And for anyone who might not know, any of our listeners who might not know about Pasolini's film Salo, it takes place in the Repubblica di Salo. It's the, it's the last bastion of fascism where Mussolini and his... Um, um, and his the last this is the last bastion where they go after he's been ousted in 1943 on um, uh, to the north of Italy past the um, Linea Gotica so that there is some protection from the Germans and there is a reenactment of um, and that's the setting and it's really important because of its critique of fascism right um, and so I just wanted to say that there is there are these reenactments of um, uh, as you were saying, um, certain lessons that quote unquote must be imparted to the group that is gathered there, which is anything but a, a happy uh, group collection. Um, uh, so I don't know if you wanted to say anything more about that. It's just that I think some people may not know, may not be familiar. Our colleagues listening will know about Salo, but I don't know about our other listeners. That's right. Thank you so much. Yeah. So um, that's key context, um, and it's it's um, yeah, sort of setting the stage for, um, and I think also indicating some of the reasons uh, this was such a you know a, a kind of yeah scandalous um, scandalous film. It's also I think I, I mean some of the I think uh, dance I'm doing in my answer might have to do with a. a kind of um difficulty even now right having having spent years thinking um and writing about the film um some of the difficulty um i have in kind of uh speaking about it directly um because i i guess it gives me the opportunity to say um your question gives me the opportunity to say that i am not holding this out as um kind of an example of good um good education, good instruction, good pedagogy, right? It's not as if, um, it's not as if what the film shows, right, is a kind of pedagogy that I seek to um, affirm. Instead, what I'm trying to think uh, long and hard about in the chapter on on Salo is um, why the film asks us to revisit these scenes of not just teaching the kind of teaching that in these assemblies, right, in these, um, you know, group gatherings where um, songs are sung and stories are told, um, 
not just teaching in these scenes, but also outright torture, right? Like, why is he asking us in 1975 to revisit this republic, this kind of um, last readout of fascism and and making the experience of, of that return so relentless and so brutal, right? And, in, and at various levels, right? I mean, one thing that I think is interesting about Salo is it's actually um, boring. Like, for all its sensational for all its sensational um, kind of in-your-face, you know, graphic depictions of of violence of various kinds, it's actually pretty boring in its unfolding, is my sense, my strong sense, right? Um, I I just wanted to add, I don't mean to interrupt, I just wanted to add that, you know, with regard to uh, that particular moment, it also might be really important to to mention at least two other films that came out around the same time having to do with the revision of fascism, one being Liliana Cavani's The Night Porter and the other being Lena Wertmuller's um, Pasqualino Sette Bellezze or Seven Beauties, simply to say that um, the, the topos or the setting of um, fascism for the working out of um, historical memory was not visited only on Pasolini's shoulders with this film. So it is part of a cadre of other films, in, including still others, like Capo, for example, that I'm that I'm, which would be another example, Ponte Corvo's Capo. Um, but uh, yeah, it wasn't alone. So it was really part of a whole um, historical moment, I think, in the mid 1970s. Not to not to uh, diminish Pasolini's uh, you know unicity uh, in his treatment, but I would not call either The Night Porter or Seven Beauties a dull film for example. And exactly. the boredom is so interesting, which also leads us back to what are you, th- what does one think about when one is bored, for example, during a catechism that could be considered boring or a lecture that could be considered boring? You know, what, what are we doing when our mind goes out, but our body stays stationary, if it is, right, staying stationary, watching, listening, um, not participating. It seems to me really crucial that 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 tallies or um, in some ways um, corresponds to the kind of boredom that you're talking about. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. And and so so the question then becomes right. Why was it so important? Um, you know, not just as a matter of you know historical accuracy, right, or rep- representation, um, but as an experience we undergo, right? Why was it so important for the film to be um, as rote, right? And repetitious as it is, right? Unlike, yeah, why why was it not leavened by um, humor? I mean, the occasional instances you could locate a very, very dark humor, but but I think Wertmuller's, um, Wertmuller's Pasqualino Sette Bellezze is really instructive um, as a kind of contrastive example, right? Or counterexample. where there, there's there's a kind of um, bleak um, humor that, that keeps I don't know if you'd exactly say leavening our encounter with the film, but but it's um, it's involving us in the film as spectators in a way that I think the um, yes yeah, spacing out that we want to do if only to if only to protect ourselves from what's on screen right like if only to kind of shield ourselves um, from the difficulty of the encounter with Salo right. Um, What's happening exactly as you say in that um, way we develop of coming up against the film, of resisting um, the film, of yeah, not liking 
right? This lesson that we're being so aggressively taught. You know, I'm so grateful that you used the word liking because it really helps me to understand something. And frankly, in a much, in a much kinder way that my students say, oh, I don't like it. I don't like this, which is, I, I can, I can share with you the pedagogy of pain is something that I've said several years because I actually insisted on teaching Pasolini, not the Pasolini of Salo, but my students repeatedly said of various texts of Pasolini's, I don't like it. And I, out of obstinacy, out of, out of my own resistance strategies, I said, no, you, we need to study the things that we do not like. We need to understand why we don't like them, why we might require liking something in order to study it or in order to want to continue it. Um, so I'm sorry I interrupted. I just, it, I find very salutary uh, the use of that particular word in the context, you know, in, in, in what, in the context of what we're discussing. Yeah. I mean, um, that reminds me of a, of a, a quotation um, uh, that I take from a, a kind of obscure uh Victorian um, school assessor, so not even an educational theorist, but a, a a kind of person who went visiting, an official who went visiting various schools and um, uh, wrote up reports, right? Um, and he says, uh, this guy James K. Shuttleworth, right, um, says of um, the rote teacher um, that from this kind of teacher, students take nothing but words. And it's this next part that I think we, we might actually think about in the context of, of Pasolini, right? The rote teacher um, that Kay Shuttleworth is describing, quote, gains no confidence. It is difficult to love him because it is not obvious what good he communicates, end quote. And so this is, I mean, without getting too confessional, it's obviously um, one way of thinking about how the book uh, is about me, right? Um, this kind of um, question of what's difficult to love, um, right? And I think that that cuts across the chapters, right? That um, for all their variety um, and kind of, you know, uh, the range of historical context to which they respond or situations um, in which they participate, right? All the texts share this, um, texts and films share this this quality of being, I think, um, difficult to love. It's my sort of contrarian, uh, contrarian impulse that keeps keeps um, guiding me uh, back to these sorts of texts and films. Well, just um, as a way, I'm, I'm very mindful of the time of your time, especially, and I just wanted to say, as a way to sort of um, come to some kind of uh, circle, if not closure, I would welcome talking about this for for for, for still lots of time. Um, but the, I am not by no means a Joyce scholar, um, but in Ulysses, isn't it the case that, um, there, there's an, there's the interpolation of word and world in Ulysses. I think, um, that, um, when I was studying it in a, in a classroom and we could say a lot about those texts that lend themselves to great fruitful inquiry inside of the classroom precisely because of their difficulties, right? Exactly. Um, that there, at some point, Stephen, um, Stephen Daedalus uh, loses the L out of world and Bloom recovers it, I think. 
And there's something so beautiful about that, that whereas Stephen's world is deadened, I think, right? I mean, aren't we meant to think that, that Bloom is the, is the kind of life force of and Molly, especially the life force of that novel, but that, that, and in fact, it might be Molly who recuperates it. Does this ring any bell? The world, does, yeah. world? I mean, yeah, isn't it lovely? Isn't it beautiful? Yeah. I mean, yeah. but I think that's also a good example of the, uh, the kind of bad object that I was just describing in the sense that, right. It's important for me that, that the chapter on Joyce center on the least lovable, right. The most, um, the most demanding of the episodes, I think, in Ulysses, the one that even some, even some teachers of the novel just recommend students skip, right? Okay, um, that is so fascinating. I hadn't really put that together. Um, it, what, it's oxen in the sun. Is that what? That's what the chapter is, right? Exactly, oxen in the sun. And that it, boy is that an elusive chapter. I have to say, it's much Ithaca is much more, um, much more of a graceful homecoming uh, to to think about. I'm going to really rethink my resistance to certain um, difficult books when I'm trying to read them on my own. I'm really going to rethink this, Ramsey. And, um, and uh, because you really have helped me see this and a lot, you've helped me see in a different, um, in a different light. I want to touch very briefly, if we could, on just some methodological concerns sure. and, and ask you um, about, uh, for example, the place of psychoanalysis uh, in, as a methodological tool that you use in old schools. Um, and also, you know, which um, or how, if at all, do the theories that you write about inform your own brick and mortar or virtual classroom experiences? So psychoanalysis. And then, of course, um, we talked a little bit we, around the edges about queer theory, especially as concerns the um, a, uh, a concentration on the need to reproduce or have the or not right to have the the, the death or the, the sterility of um non-reproductive aspects of education. So queer theory being um, obviously instrumental here too. So um, methodologies, uh, talk a little bit about that if you would. Happy to, yeah. So, um, I mean, uh, the two sort of schools of thought you identified are of course interconnected in the sense that the strand of queer theory I'm most um, directly informed by and in most sustained conversation with is the psychoanalytically engaged or informed um, version of queer theory associated with people like Leo Bersani um, and Lee Edelman. Um, also, I think differently, um, someone like Heather Love or Elizabeth Freeman, right? So the conversations about, um, about queer temporality that were really of interest to me, particularly when I was um, first working on the book, um, those are, are kind of continuous with, or um, you know, further developments of uh, variations on psychoanalysis in a lot of ways, in their ways of thinking, um, non-disparagingly about uh, backwardness, right, or being behind, right, um, and not just in the kind of, um, you know, not just capitalizing on the semantic richness of of backs and fronts and behinds and so on, but but also thinking about the the value that there might be in spending time um, or tarrying behind, right, or even being backward, right, um, not not giving up, not uh, leaving things behind, but rather um, uh, dwelling in a certain past. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, there's a lot to say about psychoanalysis. Um, it's uh, It's kind of 
hard to know in some ways where to start, but I can revisit maybe the the first answer I gave to your first question um, that had to do with the, the origins of the project. And so I mentioned um, that reading Gramsci was formative for me, but also that reading um, the various uh, returns of scenes of instruction in in modernism, right, modernist literature and film was also formative. And, and one of um, the examples I had in mind when I gave that answer was, was Auden's um, poem that I quote in my introduction. He pays tribute to Freud, whom he says, um, and I'm quoting, wasn't clever at all. He merely told the unhappy present to recite the past like a poetry lesson. And that to me is very beautiful um, because um, perhaps surprisingly, right, um, reciting the past, right, in a kind of rote way is there um, brought into relation or even made to coincide um, with analytic work, right, with with the cure, right, with um, psychoanalysis, which could also be understood, right, if we think about the stress placed on working through, right, as a, as a progressive, right, um, mode, right, or, or a, um, a kind of progressive or progress-driven um, undertaking, right? You, you go to analysis, not because you want to be stuck in the past, but rather because you want, um, you want other possibilities to become open um, in your life, right? Um, the symptom um, that, that drags you down and that encodes um, the, the bad past um, which is language that comes um, comes up for me in my chapter on Pasolini, right? The symptom that encodes that bad past is not something not something you want to sustain an attachment to or continue to suffer from. Um, but whether you know it or not, right? Um, whatever relation you you have um, access you have to that symptom as symptom, right? Like on some level, you want to get over it, right? Stop suffering from it or or suffer less, right? And so, of course. Um, of course, progress in that sense, right, in the sense of doing something else, right, is the goal, is the aim of an analysis. But I think Freud, um, you know, in rich and strange and beautiful ways, keeps reminding us that that cannot happen unless you recite the past, uh, to borrow Auden's phrase again, right, which is to say, unless you revisit, return to, relive, reenact, right, um, the episodes right, the relations um, that led to the formation of that, of that symptom and the, the, um, the persistence of that, that suffering to begin with. And so um, it's, it's in that sense, the sense of um, kind of insisting on the need for, right, and the importance of returns, reenactments as indispensable to working through, right, that psychoanalysis, I say, is um, is one model of, of the counter-progressive in the sense that my book tries to develop. And uh, do I have time, uh, sorry, to cut you off, do I have time for the answer to the classroom question, or if not, if not? Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, great. great, yeah, so, um, I mean, it's a question I often get asked and that I, I love because it, again, gives me the opportunity to provide the clarification to the person in the elevator who may walk out of that elevator with the wrong idea. Um, you know, speaking of symptoms, this clearly, this this fear of the person in the elevator clearly um, occupies an outside space in my mind. But in any case, um, I, I like the the, the um, invitation to clarify that um, I am not arguing that we should simply go back um, to the old school in our own teaching as 
modernists, as film scholars, as humanists, what have you, right? Um, that said, I do think I do think that there are some techniques that um, that I have tried to use in the classroom that I that I would say are continuous with some of the thinking um, that the educators I write about in the book are doing. And I have in mind, for example, um, the reading aloud of poetry in the classroom. This can also work. This can also work with a passage of prose. But I think, in particular, um, with poetry, whether in English or another language, or both for that matter, right? Um, to create space in the classroom for not quite a reverential, right, but at least a repeated reading of a poem, even if it seems like uh, you know everyone's impatient to to get to the payoff, right, or to um, get to the article that you also assigned with Emily Dickinson, right? To create space in the classroom for the poem itself and to let students hear the difference that there is in each iteration, right? Whether because it's being read literally by a different student in a different voice or because something's being perceived collectively that wasn't perceived the last time you read through as happens as we know in poetry all the time. Right. Um, I really think this is uh, important as non-utilitarian to go back to your phrase, right. As non-utilitarian as this is, right. It seems like a kind of squandering of time and students' attention, but I really stand by the idea that this um, is, is an important part of what we do when we teach poetry, right. Or, or when we teach literature more generally. Oh, I think that's so, that's so wonderful to remember that there is the gift of that time to get back to the temporalities that you were discussing earlier, that the time that we take together to build that classroom conversation is a gift. Um, It is um, necessary, but it is nevertheless also supplemental in some way, you know, that it's, um, it's important to remember that we have to carve out the time for those kinds of enunciations uh, and in a common space and in a common time. I mean, I, I know from my colleagues' recent um, experiments with theater that you can do theater covidiously, remotely. Uh, interesting things are happening, but there is also something to be said for the in real time togetherness of um, that particular project. Completely. And how much we took for granted. Right? I mean, I think this is a moment uh, of where we're all recognizing right, how much we took for granted about that, that way of being together as bodies in a room, right, as voices, right, um, sounding together together. Uh, without the mediation of um, of screens. I mean, I think about also, this is kind of something I've thought about because of how important um, the collective experience of film spectatorship is to my sense of um, the films I write about in the last two chapters of the book, right? Like, I think a lot of the pedagogical work they do depends on their assumption that the films would be collectively seen, right? That it would be like an assembly, Right, in the sense of, right, like a school assembly in the sense of bringing bodies together um, in a room, right? And that, of course, changes when film becomes available in various formats that are much more tailored to individual comfort and needs um, 
that are digitized and therefore, you know, can be consumed very differently, right? And with much more flexibility and freedom. I am um, absolutely going old school the next time I teach my film class and I can have an embodied experience in terms of common screenings. I will absolutely do it with my students. How about it? Yeah. We're going to definitely do that. So Ramsey, before we leave, a couple of words about what you're working on now. Sure. Yeah. So I um, am in the early stages of work um, on a, a book that thinks not about uh, preserving institutions, if only to transform them as old schools does, um, but rather about the meaning of, um, of dismantling institutions um, or, or the meaning of abolition, right? So the project uh, is about the work of Franco Basaglia and other uh, of his collaborators associated with um, Italian anti-psychiatry, which is also known, I mean, that's kind of a problematic designation. Um, it's, it's sometimes referred to as uh, radical, critical, or democratic um, psychiatry. And on the comparative horizon of that return to a, a figure who's, uh, you know, you know, um, credited with uh, a, a good reform, right? So uh, the abolition of, or the uh, outlawing of asylums in the Italian context. Um, on the comparative horizon, though, are conversations happening closer to home, which is to say, um, in the United States, though not only there, about the the meaning of abolition and what it would be to build a world without prisons, uh, detention centers, and policing. So the suggestion is not that these abolitionist conversations need to revisit Basalia, right, um, as an instance of kind of um, abolition, right, or a, a case of successful abolitionist organizing. But, but I think both um, conversations have the potential to speak to one another, and we might appreciate Italian anti-psychiatry differently um, if, if we read it in this kind of comparative way. And likewise, there, there might be, might be um, things to learn uh, here and in other contexts where abolitionist conversations remain ongoing, debates continue to unfold, and organizing is still taking place. Um, if we do look at right, um, this history um, this history of abolition. And, uh, you know, another dimension to the project has to do with, with thinking about the literary dimension, um, the literary dimension of Basalia's work and of anti-psychiatry more generally. So um, something of a sequel to old schools uh, that also, you know, uh, tries to respond to the ways in which the background became the foreground. Um, so I was really, I was really animated just to come to a conclusion. Um, I was really animated writing old schools, as I think you've already uh, hinted at, right, animated by a, a kind of optimism of the will or a sense um, that as someone doing the humanities today, right, it was really important to make the case for um, the importance of what we might take to be outmoded, right, what, what's unfashionable, what's old, what's obsolete, right, what's non-utilitarian, what's out of sync with, um, with the times. And that defense took the form of, um, you know, a book about the case for preserving institutions, if only in order, again, to radically transform them or to uh, preserve their radical uh, potential, the potential for subversion that there is within them. Um, as I followed conversations about the kinds of institutions that cannot be transformed or um, ought not to be preserved, but 
really need to be abolished. It's made me want to continue the thinking that I do in old schools, but but kind of place the emphasis elsewhere and think much more about um, what it what it would mean in a dialectical way, right? To undo, right? To dismantle, um, again, to abolish um, an institution, an institution like the asylum um, or the prison. Thank you. Thanks for that. That sounds so fascinating. I, I'm looking forward to the follow-up to uh, the book we've been discussing today on the Italian Studies channel of the New Books Network, which is Old Schools, Modernism, Education, and the Critique of Progress, available at your local bookstores, I know, out with Fordham University Press. Uh, and we've been here with uh, Ramsey McLaser for a fascinating conversation um, about education, about counter-tradition, about radical potentials of um, interrogating the old. Ramsey McLaser, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I'm very grateful. Thank you. It's, it's been a thrill and a pleasure, really and truly. <laughs>